Hello, and welcome to Pieces of History with me, Colin McGrath. This week, Alex was very kind enough to join me again for part two of the story of 1066. I hope you enjoy. So we left off the last episode with William the Conqueror then. He was on the shores of France waiting to cross the channel. Um, so if, if I do a, a quick recap just on the first episode then, um, Alex. So essentially, in, if, I'm, if I'm correct, in 1035, his father died. Then mm-hmm. you were saying that in the 1040s, I suppose, that's when his identity was kind of created. You were saying in blood and iron. Um, yeah, absolutely. He, he has to fight for his life and his and his country, really, um, yeah. because he's so young when his father dies. And, and Normandy sort of, you know, it doesn't collapse, but it very nearly does. Yeah. And then also he, he had a couple of strategic moves that worked really well in his favour. He married Matil- Matilda of Flanders as mm-hmm. well. And the, the Count of Flanders was his former enemy. And he was able to kind of pacify that. And also a few other suppose, characters in the story died as well. And um, was it the Count of Anjou died at this uh, around 1060s, was it? As yeah, well. that's right. That's right. So you've got you've got Geoffrey, the, 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 the Count of Anjou. Um, and and also uh, the King of France as well. That they both die in, in 1060, and uh, in the preceding years they had been you know troublesome neighbours for William, mm-hmm. and they they had they had invaded Normandy you know and get, caused him a bit of trouble. He'd managed to to stave them off, but with with the, those two dying in 1060, um, that gives him a lot of breathing room because their successors, I think, in one case. I think it's the king is replaced with um, uh, uh, his successor is very young, so he's just a mm-hmm. minor effectively. So he's not going to be, you know, um, he's not going to be campaigning on a, on an aggressive foreign policy. And uh, Count Geoffrey's heir is is was seen as as fairly weak as well. So sort of mm-hmm. more more focused on internal stuff. Yeah, and then in 1063, he also expanded into Maine, so he kind of conquered that area too. So he's and then mm-hmm. I'm just I'm trying to remember as well. Did he conquer somewhere else? Was it to the north or was it to the south? I can't remember, Alex. Well, so he so he, so he conquers Maine, um, which is this this sort of a small semi-independent county that's wedged in between Normandy and Anjou. These you know the, these two bigger states, and so he William secures control over Maine in 1063, and then in the following year or, or the year after, in 1064 65. He campaigns uh, in in the west against the Bretons in Brittany. Uh, so if you, know, if you, you know Normandy is on the on the northern coast, so there's just the English Channel to the north, and then you've got Brit- Brittany to the west, Anjou and Maine to the south, and then you've got uh, Flanders to the sort of northeast, going up going up the coast to where you know Belgium and the and the Netherlands are today. So he's managed um, p- partly by his own, you know, designs but also by a bit of luck uh, managed to secure himself against all of his would-be enemies on the continent. Mm-hmm. Um and now so 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 the stage is set essentially for him to cross the channel. Um so then if we actually move across the channel to England then what what was the state of the monarchy at this point? So Edward died in January 1066, and then um, what what happened after that? Then, yeah, no, I, th- I think I mean, if if you're okay, I'll give you a bit of background on the reign of Edward the Confessor because I think what we what we did last time we sort of spoke about the Kingdom of England and how and how it formed, you know, over the 
over the centuries leading up to the 11th century, if you like. But I don't think we really looked, um, did we, at at the Kingdom of England as it operated in the uh, in the early um, 11th century. So of if course, you're happy, yeah. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a bit of because we, we sort of did that. You know, we've we've done, if you like, Normandy before 1066, looking at Williams. You know, um, 30 years before and so I, su- I suppose what we can do now is do the same with england because w- when, when when we left you know williams waiting to cross the channel but we hadn't really delved into the question of well why is he invading england in the first place of course, yeah that's perfect yeah, yeah, well, I suppose, yeah. so i suppose we need to sort of we need to answer that don't we yeah so i'm just trying to think where do we where do we leave off england then who was the monarch at the time was it Edward just kind of came onto the throne roughly ten forties? Was it? Um, yeah. So Edward uh, becomes king of England in ten forty. Oh gosh, actually, now you're testing me. Is it ten forty one or ten forty two? I think it's ten forty one. But no, maybe that's when he. I think he leaves Normandy in ten forty one. Yeah, that's right. He leaves Normandy in ten forty one, and he becomes king. Um, in 1042. Okay. But I need to I need to sort of explain a bit more background before we get to that otherwise it it will make no sense at all. So yeah, you're left with Wessex, they're the last kingdom and they manage um under the reign of King Alfred and his son and grandson to to sort of fight against the Vikings and basically kick them kick them out and and so we get the kingdom of England comes into existence in the early 10th century underneath uh, under the rule of, of the kings of Wessex. So the kings of Wessex become the kings of England. Uh, and, and that's how England, or all of the Anglo-Saxons, if you like, are unified. Um, so what does that, what does the Kingdom of England actually look like um, in terms of, you know, government politics? Well, you've got the king. He He's the most important person. And he rules England... In, in council, if you like, with the great nobles of the land. And uh, the great nobles uh, are called the, the Witan, basically translated as the wise men. And obviously, you know, the king is the king and, and the word of the king is law and he makes all the decisions, but he has to, or at least he has to be seen to make these decisions with a sense of, of consensus. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, of course, yeah. So it's the king in council with 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 the great with the, with the great men, you know, the most powerful nobles, and um, uh, the king is you know seen as divinely ordained, almost superhuman, if you like, right? You know, he's he he is blessed by God. God wants him there. He he's he he is one of God's representatives on earth. He's charged with not only the the sort of temporal protection of his people, you know, against war and and everything else, but also the the spiritual protection protection. So he looks after God's church, and for the king, that means he controls the church as well. We're not dealing with a situation where uh, the Pope in Rome, you know, governs the church, which is which happens a bit later on really in the later middle ages if if you ever studied henry the 8th for example uh you know the pope sort of runs the, runs the church throughout christendom but in this time period mm-hmm. it's the it's the kings it's, it's the christian kings who really control the church within within their realms 
there's no there's no capital city in England. Essentially, that you know, the king and his court is is the capital, and that moves around. Uh, so so the government was itinerant, as we say, uh, and it followed the king wherever he went. Now, these guys were traditionally the you know historically they'd been the kings of Wessex, and even though they've now unified, excuse me, they've unified the whole kingdom of England. They rarely go north. You know, most the kings they do move around, but it's mainly you know around uh, you know twenty or so hot spots south of the, south of the Thames, which is historically you know Wessex territory, the the Wessex heartland. That's not to say that there are no important sort of fixed centres. Uh, Winchester is probably the most important uh, royal centre for Wessex and England. Uh, there's a big royal palace there, and um, perhaps most importantly, the treasury is there as well. All the money is stored in in Winchester. But you know, London's also really important as well, um, especially as a trading centre. You know, it sort of opens up England to the North Sea. Um, it's also a good place, uh, a good sort of naval base, if you like, um, in this period as well. Um, the king uh, holds land throughout his kingdom. So th- this is my particular area of expertise. You know, my, my thesis looks at the royal estates, and you know, the royal estates give give the king a very a very real, tangible presence throughout his realm. Um, and that's important. You know, that even though the king himself very rarely travels to all of the regions within his kingdom, especially in the north. He does have a he does have a landed presence there. Um, again, his estates are going to be more concentrated in the south, you know, in the Wessex heartlands. But it's important to state that certainly by Edward the Confessor's reign, um, there are royal estates spread far and wide throughout the kingdom, and they not only provide him with a sort of tangible presence, but also a regular annual income. This is where basically every everyone who's anyone derives most of their income it's from it's from the rents of land there's also however a direct land tax in england this is called the geld or the dane geld now if i told you the dane geld what do you think that might mean i would say the dane geld also comes from the vikings obviously as well it's the descendant from 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 their invasion several centuries before that's it yeah basically so the the dane geld or or the or the danish tax is essentially what the anglo-saxons or at least you know what wessex used to levy when they needed to either raise an army to fight the vikings or to literally pay them off to to basically offer the vikings a load of money as as tribute to say please you know go somewhere else and and do your do your raiding um, and we'll give you all this money if you promise to go away for a bit. So the the, the English basically had, you know, the Anglo-Saxons had this system, and e- even though uh, in in the earlier, you know, well, in Edward the Confessor's reign, the the Dane Geld is still a thing, even though there might not necessarily be an an immediate Viking threat. The Dane Geld is is still levied. Um, pretty regularly so mm-hmm. i'd say i'd say you know there you've got your sort of general income 
on the one hand, you've got the royal estates, which is regular annual income, but you've also got a direct land tax, which kings can levy uh, if and when if and when they need to. Was there a point whenever Viking raids actually stopped coming into England and, and the UK at this point? Um, what- yeah, well, yeah, they. I suppose they do. I mean, they're they're very active in England. Um, in you know from from eight six five onwards, so the the late ninth century. But then, as as the as Wessex and and the Anglo Saxons sort of get their act together and start fighting them off in the in the early tenth century, um, they they sort of stop going there and, and they instead go and raid France, which is how we get the Normans, if you remember from last week, mm-hmm. and they 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 do come back to England. And and this is actually really important when we start to think about how we get to 1066 and the Norman Conquest and, and, and even Edward the Confessor's reign, which we can turn to now if you like, mm-hmm. uh, because the, the, the Vikings come back to England in a very, very big way in the early 11th century. And in fact, England, uh, the Kingdom of England, the first time it's conquered is not 1066. It's actually... 1016 to be honest i've never heard of 1016 so what so how, how did that come around then alex yeah no absolutely so um let's think about this uh we could probably start with edward the when when edward edward the confessor who's who's obviously the king that we were talking about who dies in 1066 mm-hmm. he he's born um in the very early 11th century right he's probably born in 1003 or 1005 and he's born to the king, and the king of England at this stage is called King Athelred. Um, he's not really well remembered. He gets a he gets a pretty bad rep, um, partly because he massacred a load of Danes, but also because he he sort of lost lost the kingdom, um, and it was conquered by by, by the Vikings. So uh, King Athelred is is the king, and uh, his wife is Queen Emma. And Athelred is a direct descendant in the male line of, of Alfred the Great, so he's you know he's got he's got a good got a good bloodline, good dynasty going. Um, and the the problem for Athelred really is that it, it's in his reign, uh, especially in in the in the early eleventh uh, century, that sees England come under increased attack from the Vikings. You know, as I said, since the late ninth century, the Vikings were being driven from England, and instead they were they were raiding France, which at the time offered them a, a lot more in terms of um, you know weakened opponents rather rather than the English. But by the late tenth century, they'd begun to turn their attention back towards England, part, partly because you know England, even though it was unified now and and they were not divided. It was a fairly sophisticated medieval state. You know, it had this Danegeld tax. And so if the Vikings could get in there, it offered them great wealth because because the English could very quickly raise a lot of money and offer it to them. So they didn't really have to do much, you know. So if you're an enterprising Viking, you might say, okay, well, let's go back to England and get ourselves a load of Danegeld. And so so in yeah, in the in the early eleventh century, there's lots of Viking activity going on. They're coming back to England, they're raiding. And the um, 
the the major Viking attacks were led by a chap called Swain Forkbeard, who I, who I imagine his beard was in the shape of a fork, you know, had little had little prongs coming out of the chin. And he he uh, is the king of Denmark, and he's also the king of Norway. So you know he's he's got a good realm. And in I think it's in the summer of ten thirteen, King Swain personally leads a full scale Viking invasion of England. And this is really bad news. The English, um, well, King Athelred is very worried. He actually sends his wife and children including uh, young Edward the Confessor, into exile. Where do they go? And here's probably the most important point when we're... Well, well, it's the first point to really think about when we think about the Norman conquest, which happens in 1066. They go into exile into Normandy. Why do they go to Normandy? Because Edward's mother, Emma, is a Norman. Right, okay. Emma is... She's Queen of England. She's married to King Athelred, but she is the sister of the Duke of Normandy, who at this time is a chap called Duke Richard II. Okay. And just to put that in context, Duke Richard, uh, Duke Richard II is William the Conqueror's grandfather. Okay, so William's not born. William's not born at this stage, but his grandfather is the Duke of Normandy. His sister is married to the English king. When the Vikings under Swain rock up to essentially invade England in 1013, Athelred says to his wife, uh, "I think you and the kids better get the hell out of here," and they go off to Nor- and they and they go off to Normandy. And actually, I think Athelred himself um, soon after follows them. Right, okay. And and at, that, and at that point, you know, English resistance basically collapses, um, and Swain, king of Denmark and Norway becomes king of England as well. And Alex, was Athelred also known as the, the unready, but it didn't technically mean that he wasn't ready. Was it a pun on his name? I've read somewhere before as well. That is exactly right. Yeah, it's not that he wasn't ready. You know, he was always sort of, oh, startled. Uh, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's, a pun on, it's a pun on his name. Yeah, so um, Athelred uh, basically means noble counsel. So sort of, you know, someone who is well-advised and uh, unready, Athelred the unready. So the unread part means ill-counseled. So his, so the nickname was, you know, good counsel, bad counsel. All right, okay. Right, so they're and basically uh, saying that he didn't, you know, he was supposed to be a wise and, and counseled king, but actually it turns out he didn't really have uh, good advice. And that's And that's a broad criticism for kings in general you know often when people criticize kings especially not when they're horrendous mm-hmm. most of the chronicles will criticize their advice that's the problem it's not that they were terrible it's that they, they got bad advice and it's it's reflective of modern days politics as well alex <laughs> yeah i think that's true um definitely it's 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 not me it's my advisors yeah i think i think you know um a, a, a lot of this uh, survives to this day, absolutely, yeah. And you know, sometimes to to, to the ruler's benefit, right? It's much better to have, uh, you know, all all of the negative attention focused on on an advisor rather than you yourself. Of course. And then, so what happened next in the story? How long did Forkbeard stay in power? Then was it did he stay for long, or was there a counter invasion then? Well, yeah, sort of. 
uh, he, he doesn't stay in power long at all, actually. So pretty, pretty much. Um, I think it's a. I mean, it's not my area of expertise, but it's certainly like a matter of weeks or months. Um, he he dies, um, not in battle or anything like that. I just think he dies. You know, it's the Middle Ages. Uh, he's not an old old man, but he he dies. And um, at this point, the English sort of get their act together again, and Athelred and some of his and some of his older sons uh, return to England and make you know tr- try to reclaim the kingdom and get rid of uh, Swain's Viking followers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should say yes that Edward the Confessor is is a much younger son. He I think he is. Um, something like the sixth or the seventh son of King Athelred. So he's got he's got lots of older brothers, and so uh, Edward stays in Normandy uh, at this point. But his father and his older brothers go back to England when Swain dies. However, um, they don't really make a success of it, and both Athelred and his uh, his oldest living son, a chap called Edmund Ironside, they both die in 1016. And England falls then under the complete control of, of uh, Swain's son, King Canute, who you probably have heard of. Mm-hmm. I have indeed, yep. Yeah. So, in, and that's why 1016, you know, England was sort of conquered twice, sort of, you know, once in 1013 by Swain. He then dies very soon after becoming king. There's another little, you know, uh, dancing of allegiances. The English try and make a comeback, but in the end, the 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 Scandinavians win. Athelred dies. His his uh, son Edmund Ironside uh, dies. The legend is that he was murdered while on the toilet. Uh, sort of one of those stupid deaths, and 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 in 1016. England is now under under Viking control, and Swain's son Canute becomes becomes the king. And then Canute hold, holds on to power for a few decades. Is, would that be right, Alex? Yeah, that's absolutely right. He he remains king of England until his death in ten thirty five, and actually he he ends up ruling what historians call uh, a North Sea Empire because he's not only king of England, but he's also king of Norway, king of Denmark, and, and he rules a, a lot of Sweden as well, I think. So he's, you know, he, does, he does very well for himself, to say the least. And then so from 1035 onwards, does control of the monarchy still reside within, I suppose, the Vikings then? Or is there a resurgence of the English, or is Edward plotting? What there, I suppose there's so many different strands going on at this point yeah, as well. Yeah, in no, time. There, there are. That, you know, that's why this story is so fascinating to me. Um, so, so let's sort of let's try and think of it from Edward's point of view. You know, he, he's had to flee his home. Um, you know, in, in 1016, he's he's probably no older than I don't know 12, and. Uh, as if it couldn't get any worse for, for this kid, his mother, Emma, remarries. And she, re, she, she remarries King Canute. So she had been the wife of Athelred, and she basically continues to be Queen of England by the fact that she, she, she remarries um, 
the Viking invader who who had forced her husband off the throne. That's a pretty savvy marriage there as well. If you if you think if you think about it from Emma's point of view, it's just, absolutely you know. yeah. No, she 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 is an, an incredibly effective political operator, um, operating in you know let's face it, what was a man's world, um, and she is able to to you know she knows what she's doing, um, and she you know she probably sees that this is her best opportunity to to hold on to position to hold on to power and and so and so she so she marries Canute and returns to England um and 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 lives there but Edward uh remains in Normandy you know he's still in exile in Normandy while his mom is back uh being queen of England and then so he finally makes his return to England in 1041 would that be correct he does, yeah. So he he remains in Normandy for yeah for 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 a lot, you know, really for for a long time. He he only comes back. Um, he, he's only able to make a successful comeback to England in in ten forty one. And for all the intervening years, he's basically this exiled prince, you know, without his kingdom, living at the at the ducal court in Normandy um, with his uncle. Um, but how does he actually make his return? Well, when Canute dies in 1035, um, he's, he, he himself has got you know several sons and, and his sort of North Sea empire is divided between the sons. Um, first of all, England is inherited by a chap called Harold Harefoot and um, he, he reigns, I think, for about five years. And then we get Hartha Canute, and Hartha Canute, he he reigns in uh, in 1040. He is Edward's half brother, yeah. Because you see, Emma has children mm-hmm. with Canute where, where when she re- when she remarries, mm-hmm. and so um, when when Harold Harefoot dies, Hartha Canute, son of Canute's son of Emma, becomes the king of England. Uh, he probably, you know, at the insistence of Emma. Um, and other, you know, English nobles at the court, he invites Edward the Confessor to say, "Come back to England, and you can be my heir after I die." And so, in 1041, he he accepts the invitation. He comes back to England, and Arthur Canute dies the following year, and that's when Edward becomes King of England in 1042, and he and he's probably in his late 30s. I suppose in this time period as well, mortality rates are so high that realistically, Edward, he probably thought to himself, if I go back to England, I won't really have that long to wait until I am king myself anyway. So it's essentially a waiting game probably on his behalf. Yeah, yeah, to be honest, I mean, it, and there's not much else he can do, you know. I mean, he he knows that he's got this claim to England. I think I think that's fair. I mean, he does. There is an incident actually in uh, so just just after Canute dies in in ten thirty five, um, Edward and his younger brother called Alfred, who's also been uh, in exile in Normandy with him, in in ten thirty six they they cross the Channel. and they it's possible that they're trying to make a bid for the throne. You know, Canute is dead. 
the the sort of Viking political establishment seems to be fracturing, you know, different sons going for Norway, you know, Denmark and England. So they see Canute's death as as a chance for the the old Anglo-Saxon dynasty to to come back. And uh, it's also possible, you know, that Emma, who who was still the queen, uh, even though Canute had died, she was still alive. It seems that she basically tries to persuade Edward and Alfred to come to England, because obviously then her position at court would be maintained. If 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 an older son of Canute, such as Harold Harefoot, takes over in England, she will have no position because you know she she's a second wife of Canute and and a son a son begot by another another queen would would not have any allegiance to Emma. Mm-hmm. So it seems that in 1035, she's sort of looking and seeing, okay, well, how how can I maintain my position? Um, and so Edward and, and 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 Alfred they cross in 1036, but it doesn't go well for them, particularly for Edward's younger brother Alfred. He actually dies. He they 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 both arrive in England, but the young Alfred is captured by. Um, for, by the forces of a chap called Earl Godwin, uh, someone will will we will revisit later, and basically, under the orders of uh, Harold Harefoot, you know the sort of main rival to the throne, who's King of England, uh, he is he is um, blinded and, and mutilated, and and he dies. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Pretty pretty That's nasty that. end. Uh, Edward l- luckily is able to to get the heck out of there and go straight back to Normandy. Probably when he hears about his brother's fate, but mm-hmm. but poor Alfred um, isn't so lucky. Right. Okay. Um, and then I suppose if we kind of pick it up a wee bit, Alex. Um, so Edward comes over then in 1042, and so his reign lasted for roughly 40, 44 years, I suppose. And you were saying about the Earl Godwin as well. Were there any other powerful families within England at this point? And did Edward have to, did they, did they swear allegiance to him? Did he have any um, any families, I suppose, any detractors? Were anyone trying to knock him off his throne at this point during his reign? I mean, it, it, n- n- certainly not in the sense that anyone's trying to off him or get rid of him. Um, he, he's sort of the only choice in, in, in 1041, 1042. He does have to deal with powerful forces, Remember that you know he spent most of his time in in exile, so he he is disconnected from the networks of power in a very real way, you know, in England, and he's sort of parachuted in in 1041, becomes the king the next year, but he doesn't really know anyone. Okay, his mother's there, but that's it, really. Um, and traditionally, I think it's fair to say that Edward's reign has. Uh, has received a sort of negative rep- reputation. He's he's been seen as a weak king, uh, unable to deal with the sort of problems that he faced, and and, and historians have characterised his reign as politically unstable and dominated in particular by the family of Earl Godwin or or Earl Godwinner as as his Anglo-Saxon Old English name is, but we also call him Godwin. And um, you know, uh, Godwin. He had risen from sort of relative obscurity, really. We don't know where he comes from, but uh, this happens under Canute. He had done very well under Canute, and he had been made the the Earl of Wessex. 
sort of a, one of the one of the powerful regional governors with, within the kingdom of England. Um, and he, he he becomes very powerful, very wealthy, and and probably you know played the role of kingmaker in inviting Edward back from Normandy and making sure that he became king without opposition in 1042. The best way to describe Godwin for me in a nutshell is you must have seen Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm, of course. Tywin Lannister. And I'm sure the name Tywin is mm-hmm. not it's not coincidentally similar to Godwin. Oh, right. Okay. So, yeah, you yeah. can see the link there. Yeah, of course. I'm pretty sure that, yeah, George R.R. R. Martin knew what he was doing there. So, for me, <laughs> in a nutshell, that is Godwin. He's this immensely powerful and wealthy figure behind the throne. Even more so to 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 uh, make the comparison with with Tywin Lannister his daughter Edith marries the king right okay so he you know he he sort of he he has made sure edward gets in with no problem uh in, he's crown king in 1042 uh, a couple of years later um his daughter Edith marries king edward she becomes queen and his two oldest sons uh, Swain and Harold are also given uh, earldoms in England, these these sort of regional governorships. So uh, Godwin himself is the Earl of Wessex, but his oldest son, Swain, is given another earldom in, in the sort of southwest Midlands. And uh, Harold, Harold Godwinson, who we'll also hear from later, he's he becomes Earl of East Anglia. So, you know, he... I think it I think it is fair to say that Edward's particularly his early reign is really dominated by by Godwin because you know he he basically relied upon Godwin and and also his mother Emma uh, if he was going to have any chance of ruling the kingdom after having been you know in exile for 30 years. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I suppose um like Godwin was like a father figure to him as well. What would you say or would it be wrong there? Well, um yeah i mean you'd be forgiven for thinking that but the problem is that he godwin has this sort of uh tarni- he's tarnished himself a bit in edward's eyes because of his role played in 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 the murder of of his of his uh, brother alfred because when when the two of them turn up in england in 10 in 1036 it's godwin it's godwin's men that capture alfred and deliver him to uh you know to harthur canute's sort of justice really which which results in his death and mm-hmm. i imagine edward you know he sort of knows he's got to rely on godwin a bit and and is probably grateful for his support in making him king but he's also like you killed my brother <laughs> you know but of course it's you know that the, there's the political machinations for you really of course yeah um yeah better the devil you know i suppose as well yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we've talked about our Godwin as well, and there's an also another family, and I can't pronounce their name. Is it Leo, Leo, Leo Winsons? <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yeah, the the Leo Winsons or the the the, the family of of uh, a guy called uh, Elderman Leofwina. These are the sort of main rivals to to the Godwinsons. Uh, they're based predominantly in Mercia, uh, in in the Midlands. And they are they are certainly not as powerful, I think it's fair to say, as, as the Godwin sons. But you know they do they do pl- play their role in in the sort of factional politics of England. 
Mm-hmm. And especially when Edward, when King Edward begins to assert himself a little bit more, he's often able to rely on the Leofwinsons for support against against the Godwinsons, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm, of course, yeah. There's an example in 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 the late 1040s when um, uh, Godwin Godwin's nephew, uh, King Swain, another Swain, who's the king of Denmark is requesting military support from from England against uh, King Magnus of Norway and Godwin says to the, to Edward you know we've got to go we've got to go and help King Swain he's my nephew but on on the advice of um the Earl of Mercia uh, Edward you know doesn't do this and obviously Godwin's pretty upset but he ha- you know he knows he has the support of of another powerful family in in resisting Godwin in 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 this way so it has it has a lot of protection as well then, and uh, yeah, we, I would say yeah. Mm-hmm. And so his reign, if we kind of push on a wee bit to the ten fifties and ten sixties, then I take it he's obviously, he's obviously cemented his position within, um, I suppose, the the empire of England or the, sorry, the kingdom of England at, at this time. And was there any other main issues that came up at this point? With was it regarding his nephew as well? Was it? Ever, that there's sort of one thing things sort of come to a head a bit really in terms of factional politics in in 1051 um edward brings with him when he comes back from exile in normandy he brings with him a few of his norman friends and he also gives them a few jobs uh, there's a chap called robert of jumiege he he eventually well he becomes archbishop of canterbury in 1051 you know that's the top job in the church the wealthiest and, and highest ecclesiastical office in the land and he also appoints another Norman, uh, William, to be Bishop of London. And Godwin is really annoyed at this. Uh, you know, he had wanted his own sort of chosen candidates to get these jobs, and he had used his influence to try and to try and make this happen. But um, Edward is able to make his own appointments, his own friends, his own Normans. In the very same year, there's another incident at Dover where the sort of townspeople get into some altercation with uh count eustace of boulogne one of one of edward's friends and they they sort of there's basically a ruckus and the king says to godwin who's the local earl go and bring order to to dover and he says no i'm not doing it and and he basically says i'm i'm backing the english you know against this foreign count eustace who's come to dover causing trouble um and so we get this problem in 1051, which nearly leads to a civil war. Uh, that you know, you've got the dispute over the ecclesiastical appointments. You've got the this incident at Dover. There's a political crisis, and in in the summer of 1051, Godwin and his sons assemble their armies, while the king rallies the other families, uh, such as Earl Earl Leofrich, who's who's from this Leofwinson family. He's also got Earl Seward, who's the Earl of Northumbria, and his own ne- the king's own nephew, Earl Ralph. They all rally to the king. They get their armies, and they sort of, you know, th- th- they're an inch away from civil war. But conflict is avoided. They talk it out, and basically Godwin and his family are, are outlawed and exiled from England. Mm-hmm. So Godwin and, and his sons... And some grandsons, they they get the hell out of there. Some of his family members are kept as hostages under Edward's control. 
and and even his own wife, you know, Godwin's daughter, Queen Edith, she's shipped off to a nunnery. You know, um, she she's no longer going to be the queen. Effectively, she is shipped off to a nunnery, right. and you know, this is really uh, it's possible. It's certainly possible that at this time, um, in in this sort of period of the Godwinson power vacuum, Edward the Confessor starts to think about possibly giving the throne of England to William Duke of Normandy because he's now been married to Edith for you know five or six years there has there haven't been any children so he's probably thinking hmm if not going to have children need to start thinking of the succession and and it's natural in my opinion that he might look to William of Normandy who is who is family you know he's his, he's his first cousin once removed on his mother's side so it's possible that at this time he he made some overtures to William about about the English succession. Did he promise him that he would be king of England? We don't know, and, and we can perhaps come back to that. But I think it's fair to say that this was on his mind. There's also, uh, do you remember I mentioned there were some hostages that were left under Edward's control? These Godwinson mm-hmm. hostages. That's right. Yeah. Uh, at some point in the 1050s, they are spirited away and conveyed to Normandy. And they end up in the custody of of Duke William in the 1050s. So he's got these two Godwinson hostages. Unfortunately for Edward, luckily for the Godwinsons, they are able to make a comeback the following year. In 1052, they sail uh, into London down the Thames with a large fleet of ships and basically sort of force their way back into English politics. They do come to terms with Edward. Godwin and his sons are restored to their earldoms. And Edith is also restored to the royal court and the royal bedchamber as queen. And the the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Norman Archbishop of Canterbury, he's kicked out and deposed and he and he flees into exile. So I think you can tell by the end of our conversation there that we didn't get to 1066. We had so much more to cover. We have actually split it into a third episode and episode three will be out on Wednesday. And in that episode, we cross back over the channel again to Normandy and we find out what William the Conqueror is up to. So I hope you join us then.